Well, welcome everyone to the to the fireside chat, the 16th fireside chat with Tom Campbell. Today we have some u- very unique questions and some questions on science, on other realities, on the exploration of consciousness, on the afterlife and reincarnation, so it should be an interesting mix. Our first question is from Ted um, from the forum. He's the forum administrator, and thank you for your question, Ted. Ted asks, I understand that the principle is that IUOCs, which are individuated units of consciousness, are attached to those avatars which have significant decision spaces as the decision makers, the digital mind of that avatar in the virtual reality, to experience itself as that avatar. This opens questions to which I do not have definitive answers. He asks, is there an individuated unit of consciousness for every potential avatar at the very low end of the decision space range? Not likely viruses, but perhaps bacteria progressing up to the ladder of those avatars that represent schooling or colony-forming species where there might be one IUOC per group and the rest filled in by the larger consciousness system. Tom has recently mentioned NPCs, which I've learned today is non-player character, who would readily fit into this classification. And I suspect that this is not a fixed arrangement, but varies on the situation for a given species or type of critter. But I do not know these answers. As a more general form of this question, when IUOCs were created within the larger consciousness system. Do we know anything about their size distribution? That is typically naturally distributed variables in PMR, which is physical matter reality, tend to occur in a bell curve distribution of that variable, such as intelligence or height. It would make sense for that to be the case here, but there are so vastly many more PMR avatars at the very low end of this spectrum as general bacteria, etc., which appear in a PMR. It would make perfect sense that there would be fewer as the low tail of the property of being able to handle decision spaces and thus arises the, situ- arise the situation described previously. I and many board members there on your forum would appreciate Tom Campbell's explanation and clarification on this matter. Okay. Um, you know, the short answer is yes, Ted. All of those um, assumptions that you made that it was probably like this or that were pretty much on target. That's kind of the way it is. Uh, yes, there's lots of avatars at the lower end. Uh, you know, the, the bumblebee I talk about, or perhaps even the clam that I mentioned in the book. You know, there's lots of, of uh, choice-making entities <clears throat> that have an extremely limited choice set. I would think that, that avatars of the type that would, um, you know, or avatars of a type that would, that would attract a consciousness like ours, you know, um, would not be very interesting to a consciousness like, well, let me let me say this differently. I think a consciousness like ours would not be attracted to a very low end set of choices because there would be very little to gain there. If your if your choices were, you know, very few. If you only had a dozen choices to make and that was it, and you just made those dozen choices, 
uh, over and over again, like maybe a bumblebee or a clam might, then I suspect that wouldn't be very growth producing for a consciousness such as the one that, that uh, we have. So the idea is, are there lots of really not too uh, very low capacity IUOCs out there that are connected with all these very low capacity individuals, or is there some other mechanism involved? Well, I would say that the, the probability is that there's some other mechanism involved. It doesn't seem particularly, um, when I say reasonable, I should say probable, that there is a, a very limited consciousness connected to every very limited potential avatar. I suspect that these very limited avatars are, uh, now they, they do make choices, and if they make choices, then obviously that choice has to be made from consciousness, because the avatar itself is just ones and zeros on a, quote, hard drive, unquote, you know, somewhere on the big computer. So any any choice, even if it's a bumblebee's choice, you know, has to be a choice from the larger consciousness system. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a choice from an independent entity, from an IUOC, like what we think of when we think about human or even dog or cat intelligence. Okay, so my guess is that this NPC, the non-player character, uh, is is the model where the larger consciousness system just plays all those lower level things itself. They don't necessarily have an a individuated unit of consciousness, an independent individuated units of consciousness uh, answering or making those choices that are so limited. The system just makes those choices according to what's probable and what's likely. Um, there are no doubt as you come up that ladder a little, we get away from the bacteria and the amoebas and the very, very, you know, limited creatures up to, to uh, uh, let's say mammals or, uh, you know, probably even fish or reptiles or things that are a little higher up the evolutionary change, up the chain, then you may find that an IUOC might inhabit something like that if it were a very low-level IUOC, one that had very little capacity. Now, would there be a lot of such low-capacity IUOCs out there uh, looking for, uh, you know, lizards and snakes and, and uh, chickens and, and uh, you know, whatever to inhabit? Probably not. I don't see a lot of point in the system generating, you know, trillions of, of uh, IUOCs to make choices for insects. It just doesn't seem like a, a good use of resources. It doesn't seem like that would be a, a, a good, rational, um, parsimonious decision on the part of the larger consciousness system to do that. So again, I would think that those choices are, uh, are made by consciousness, but by a, a piece of consciousness perhaps of the larger consciousness system as we are, but not one so, um, so evolved as we are. So now what have I just said? So have I, have I just contradicted myself there? I'm not sure, you know, I'm making this up as I go. But 
what's the difference between an, a, a non-player character, an NPC, okay, if it's played by the larger consciousness system? That means the system itself is playing those characters and us, our IUOC playing a character. What's really the difference there? We're a part of the larger consciousness system too. So are we not a part of the larger consciousness system that's, you know, that uh, is playing ourselves here and, and as an avatar, our own bodies? So you see that it gets to be a kind of a gray, a very fine, a very fine area between the larger consciousness system playing a character, that's an NPC, and our consciousness playing a character, and we're a part of the larger consciousness system. So there's just that that uh, very small difference there that um, maybe really doesn't make a lot of difference in the in the big picture. So it, you know there is no fixed answer that I have, Ted, for you. It's just you know I look at the system and I see you know what's the parsimonious um, process? How can the system do this and get the most gain for the you know most efficient use of its resources and energy? And I don't think that it would mismatch. I don't think we'd have an IOUC like the one that's operating your body, you know, operating a you know bacteria or a bumblebee. That would be a huge waste of potential. And I think it matters little whether we say it's an NPC. That means the larger conscious system just has some little part of itself doing it, or whether the larger conscious system has a much more evolved part of itself called our you know, our individuated unit of consciousness doing it. So whether it's an NPC or just some, uh, you know, we're talking about some smaller piece of the larger consciousness system. To me, that all kind of diverges back into being the same thing. It's not really a distinction that's probably worth making. Um, yes, some consciousness has to make the bumblebee's decision where the bumblebee has free will choice or the dog or the cat or the possum. Um, and we have had a concept um, that's, that uh, many people uh, find attractive in the, in the idea of a group, a group soul, if you will, rather than one, a one-on-one -on -one between consciousness and a lower level uh, being like maybe an ant or a bumblebee, rather have one, uh, individuated unit consciousness uh, making decisions for, you know, a million or a thousand of, the, of such critters. So that there's a lot more going on, but it's all going on at a lower level. Well, that too would be a rather, um, I don't know, uh, non-challenging because all the decisions would be non-challenging. There'd just be a whole lot of them. Maybe there'd be some challenge in the coordination of all of them, like in a big ant colony where it's not just a bunch of individual decisions, but the decisions are, are coordinated in some way. In which case, you can imagine that the larger consciousness system would maybe uh, uh, be playing these uh, lower uh, levels of, of consciousness function, uh, maybe many of them at once. So all of those are possibilities. There aren't any definite answers here. The larger cancer system will do whatever it has to do to get the maximum return on its investment. So it has to invest time and resources, and it wants to do that in a way that optimizes the, the, uh, the overall process. Now, partly that, that overall process has to do with 
with uh, you know, making decisions and growing up from those decisions. And I suspect if bumblebees make good decisions, that probably opens up a larger decision space for them and there's more decisions they get to make. And therefore they get to operate at a little higher level on that consciousness evolution scale. And they're doing the same thing we're doing as far as growing up. But how individual that is, or whether it's group, or whether we want to call that an NPC, now we're kind of slicing and dicing hairs, you know, and, and words at a semantic level as to how we want to describe this model. So I, I think we've, we're kind of getting to the level of detail there that it's that it's maybe not worth the time, you know, nitpicking too much about the various ways that, that could be done. That's probably not a very satisfactory answer, but it's about the best that I can uh, I can do at the time. I, I think we're we're kind of going into a level of detail that maybe where it doesn't make too much sense to to worry too much about those those details. All right, Tom. Well, thank you. The next question comes from Joe, and his question is regarding the conceptual constructs of love and justice. In the MBT book Discovery, in an early chapter, you briefly refer to justice and love as conceptual constructs. These concepts tend to be used in a relatively in a relative sense quite frequently in our everyday lives, and the concepts have certainly been used and misused in various belief systems throughout the ages, resulting in both positive and negative consequences, especially with the regards to the construct of justice. Reduced entropy in the larger consciousness system is associated with a love that is not relative and is somewhat absolute. Is there a larger consciousness system analogy to the construct of justice? Is justice loosely associated with the concept of karma or the principles of action and reaction? Or is the construct of justice only a relative concept found frequently as the basis of religious and political belief systems? Okay, this, uh, this question is, is another uh, question really in semantics of how do we want to define uh, these words? How do we, you know, if we define justice as a relative concept among, well, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe animals as well as uh, you know as well as uh, humans are humans are animals sorry for the little bit of woofing in the background there but uh, it'll quiet down shortly anyway uh, uh, if dogs and cats you know have maybe a sense of justice as well things that uh, you know are, are the way things should be the right way and then the wrong way um, if we if we define justice as a uh, point of view, a perspective of the individual, because certainly one person's justice justice is not everyone's justice. We have people that uh, you know, we would come to very very opposite viewpoints about what a, a just solution might be to a problem. Um, that would make justice a relative kind of concept that uh, we put together in our own minds and is probably very heavily based upon culture and experience. So that would be one way just to kind of to define justice. Now, if we look at it, if we, if we connect it to, to love and caring, which I think we would just use those words instead, 
then we're not talking about uh, a relative idea. We're talking about a more absolute idea of reducing entropy. So a love-based decision is, is a decision that helps reduce the entropy of the individual and the whole. Okay, a, low, uh, uh, a low entropy consciousness is what we're defining as love, caring, uh, compassion, that sort of thing, cooperation. It's about other, not about self. Okay, so if, if we, I can see you can marry the two concepts and you can say, well, justice on a, on a more absolute level is love. But now we've just replaced the word justice with love, and it's kind of confusing the issues. I, I, what I did in the book is I tend to let justice be the way most people think of it, which is a culturally based idea of right and wrong. And then love being the more absolute idea of, you know, higher or lower entropy, of being selfless, of being uh, about other and uh, cooperative and caring idea. And, and then love is defined as the things that you do or the acts that you make, the intents that you have that will, in the long term, reduce entropy. That's kind of the definition of, of, of uh, love. So I separate those two in my mind. I can see the connection that you're making, Joe. And, and uh, you're, you're seeing that, well, justice has this component of caring and love and sort of thing in it. And that's true. And you can push that to where the two words kind of combine and that uh, justice, the way you're thinking of it, that becomes an act of love and caring. But I think the way we normally use the word justice is that it's a, it's a cultural-based relative concept of what individual people think are right and wrong. Because when we think that this is right, then we think this is just. And we, when we say that's wrong, then we think that's not just. So I, I let right and wrong and justice be cultural issues. And love is kind of something that is, is above all of that. And it has more to do with the intent of serving others than uh, judging others, which were the justice and the... Uh, you know, the idea of justice and right and wrong often uh, is involved in judging others. And judging others is, uh, is uh, a little different than, than what we're talking about with love. So there's two different things there. And again, language, you can, set, you, can, you can squish those together and claim that it's one way, or you can pull them apart and see it as separate. And whichever way you do it, I think as long as you're consistent, it's probably okay to have those opinions. But uh, my, my way is to, is to separate the, uh, the uh, justice and right and wrong as cultural and the love as fundamental. Our next question comes from our newest participant, Ingeborg. Welcome. Um, in my multidimensional life and dreams, different projects on global development and evolution show up. For example, mental concepts in gestalt of astral objects without entity that prevent people from performing to their highest positive potential. Recently, I was told to dissolve one of these. I understand that it's all about the power of thought, consciousness, and practiced it already. And after Tom's answer, Inkborg, if you have anything to add or to ask, please do so. 
Uh, Don, I'd like to, to uh, I heard the statements there. I'm not sure I got the question. I could have Ingeborg maybe ask it for you, um, but I understand that she wants to know um, about mental concepts of astral objects without entity, I guess without consciousness behind them that prevent people from performing to their highest potential. Okay. Perhaps, Ingeborg, if you could ask it. Um, well, I can discuss that. Some. It could be clear. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me try. Let me try, and we'll see uh, if I do a good job. And if I don't, you can uh, you can ask me some some more questions. Uh, okay. Yeah, there there are entities out there. I think the name that's applied to them often is elementals, things that are very very basic. Um, they don't really seem to have much of an intellect or a um, I don't know if it's, if they have if they have free will it's it's very very uh, minor in the in the amount of choices that it can make and mostly they seem to be kind of programmed like they have a thing a, a thing they do um, kind of a, a mission if you will and sometimes that can be destructive. Sometimes people call these things like parasites, non-physical parasites, where they may just uh, be kind of in someone's energy and uh, interacting there in a way that's negative, and they don't seem to be intelligent. You can't really talk to them and 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 uh, you know try to convince them they should move on or do something else. They're just kind of there doing what they do, like maybe a, a piece of fungus that's growing on the side of a tree. You know, the, the fungus isn't sentient. It's just there attached to the tree, taking nutrients out of the tree because that's what fungus does. And it just happened to be fungus spores just happened to land on the bark of that, that uh, old tree and started to grow there. So it's one of those sorts of things, I believe, is, is what I would, um, you know, kind of the best description I can come for the you know for the viewers who are listening to this trying to put these things into words that make sense in, in the physical reality that are describing the non-physical is a little difficult but if you think of it in that sort of thing at kind of the fungus level or the the, the uh, parasite level there are such things around and you do run into them ever so often um, not a lot but occasionally and when you do, they're generally not all that hard to dissolve or get rid of. And typically, that's what you have to do, just like you would a fungus growing on a tree. If you wanted to, wanted to help that tree out and get rid of that fungus, then you just go out and you either cut it off or you, you know, put something toxic on it so the fungus dies. You get rid of it. And that's basically the way it is in the non-physical. So these are elemental forms without noticeable uh, consciousness, without noticeable uh, intellect and choice making, and they sometimes are a nuisance, but generally not hard to deal with. So that's just a little description of that kind of thing. If that's what it is you were talking about, then maybe that's helpful. But if not, uh, go ahead and ask me another another question to see if I can get closer to answering what you want to know. Yes. 
I hope you can hear me. I'm yes. so happy to be here for the first time. Thank you so much. And uh, the question I had, uh, you know, you, you were already very, very close, I would say. But um, the object I saw, they are not, you know, like a fungus or so, but I saw in a, in a ocean, in a wide, wide ocean, I saw an, an, an a quadrang quadrangular sh uh, shaped object. It was not a, a biomorphic, it was totally cubic, abstract, and it had a pattern design, and it was, it was called the bench. It was really called, it, it had an English name, and it was called the bench. So I, I saw it and I knew, okay, this is the bench. And um, the bench is, a, is a, this um, object uh, with this uh, black and white uh, chest pattern. And it's, um, you know, I understand that these black and white fields uh, are a metaphor of uh, polarity. And um, this, uh, this object, you know, was a sort, it, it functioned, it, no, it was generated uh, out of the misconceptions of human beings. So I under, when I saw it, I understood that this object was created by the mind, by the thought consciousness, uh, misleaded thought consciousness of human beings who were focused on power, greed, um, um, what, and similar things, you know, suppression and so on. And um, it was uh, uh, an object I knew a lot of uh, um, very mighty people were attached uh, to. So, they, they, you know, it was sort of like, like a magnetic <laughs> thing and that they couldn't get, uh, um, uh, couldn't free uh, themselves from this, um, this object that had gained an, an, an existence, but it was no entity in it, you know, there was no, no, no consciousness, no, no created being, no entity in this, it was just, uh, you know, a, a concrete, uh, and, and, the conception, misconceptions and concepts that had gained an, an, an abstract form, which was um, uh, which was uh, absolutely based on polar or the polarity thinking. So, and I knew that this uh, uh, bench was uh, was doing. <laughs> Very evil things to those human beings. So, and I saw this. I saw this two years ago, and so I, I, I saw this. Yes, and I, I knew. Okay, this is an evil thing. I would say it's not okay, but I um, didn't have any idea what to do with it. I, I, I thought, you know, I saw this now. I know. I know where the where those people are attached to. But uh, two weeks ago, so I woke up. And, uh, you know, this is the second when you wake up from dream state to wake state. And in this second, I heard the sentence, dissolve the bench. 
And then, you know, I sort of startled and I think, oh, this solved the event. I, I've never, I never would have gotten the idea to, to, to do this because, you know, I, I, yes, it was far off of any, uh, of every, any imagination I could ever have. So uh, I, I said, okay, I can dissolve the bench. So I did it. And I, you know, and I did it. One, you know, half a day later, I dissolved the bench. And while I was doing the active imagination, how to dissolve it, I, I imagined how it dissolved in the water and so step by step and when it was nearly totally gone when you know the the second it, it totally vanished there uh, uh, an, an, an astral <laughs> evil being uh, Castaneda called the voladores a volador left out of it so this was seen okay that's a little different, uh, similar to what I was saying, but, uh, but a little different. Uh, what I was telling you was more of kind of things that are indigenous to mm -hmm. the non-physical. Uh, you know, you might say light, uh, life forms or thought forms that are indigenous there. But what you're talking about is something that's created out of the human mind, something that is uh, generated and created out of, out of people, which is a little different idea and what you were seeing the whole thing though you dealt with it as a physical thing you know it was this boxy thing and it needed to be dissolved and there was something that you saw this in, in terms of physical things it was a metaphor mm -hmm. it's a metaphor for the the um the beliefs for the connections like you say the greed the the negativity Mm -hmm. the um, ego and fear that people have. Mm -hmm. And when they have this fear, um, yes, it's, you know, well, let me put it this way. You know, we, we have a, our bodies are ones and zeros, okay? Our bodies are, is information. This is a virtual reality. So the fear and the ego is within consciousness. That's part of the consciousness. And within consciousness, intent actually is is a creative thing you you create with your intent so that consciousness makes these things if you will within you know the what is non-physical at least from the perspective of of uh, our virtual reality so then it, these things seem to be like creatures that inhabit the non-physical but they're not so much on their own like the first one i talked about it's like the fungus these are metaphors for the negativity and dysfunction of individuals. Mm -hmm. So you have this dysfunction, and then this, this bench is a, is a metaphor for that dysfunction. And yes. you can see how the people are stuck with their, with their beliefs, mm -hmm. with their dysfunction, because that's, that's part of them now. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're seeing is a, is a metaphor for that dysfunction. Then you got the idea to dissolve it, to destroy it. And that idea was given to you because it gave you an active part in this thing. Okay, now you see that people carry around these, uh, you know, a metaphor for their dysfunction is this, this blocky thing that you, that you saw. And you're, you can become active in that by 
dissolving it. That made you an active participant rather than just a, a, an observer. Yes. And that then was an exercise for you to see, to teach you that you actually have a volition. You have something you can, you can do here, you know, function you can perform. This is, it's not just, oh, this is the way it is, but this is the way it is. And I can change it. I can help. I can help fix that sort of thing. So you do and you dissolve it. And that's like a, um, what do we say? Like a, um, a learning moment for you in the classroom. Now you're, you're a piece of consciousness, you're learning and growing, and you just got the, a lesson in you can be active. You can be proactive in your, in your uh, yeah. explorations and not just be an observer. Mm -hmm. So that's why you got that message. Now what happened when you actually dissolved it? Well, this particular blocky thing, if you saw that it was, that this thing was a metaphor for negative issues that very, you know, that particular people had, then when you dissolved it, you actually lightened those issues some. You probably didn't take them away because you can't make people grow up by, you know, doing things to them. But what you did is you just reduced the pressure, say, from that negativity. You lessened their attachment to that negativity for a while. Now, of course, if, if they don't grow up, they'll just reproduce that. Mm -hmm. They'll create, you know, they'll create another one. Mm -hmm. And then you also had the metaphor of this kind of negative being that was inside of it. Well, that was a metaphor for the negative part of the being really that created it. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is let that go, you know, which is another way of saying, let go of the fear. Mm -hmm. so, so these, these symbols are really metaphors. We have to, you have to pull this apart, not, not so much just looking at the at the um, you know what you saw. Well, I saw the boxy thing, and it had an evil thing in it, and it was attached to these people. Think of that as a are all metaphors. You were actually seeing pictures that were metaphors for dysfunction of people, and you learned the lesson that you can help by dissolving those things. But you didn't learn yet, but you probably will, that that help is really temporary. The people will put that back if they don't grow up. But it makes it easier for them to see it because now they have a moment of relief. Now they have a, a little opportunity with that relief to gain perspective where they can say, oh, this feels so much better when I don't have all that negativity, you know, pressing on me all the time. Maybe I need to work toward that you know, perspective and have it, have it longer, have it more often. So mm -hmm. it gives what it does for them, besides giving them a little bit of, of, um, of a break from the constant pressure of their own negativity, it lets them feel for a, a little while what it's like not to have it. Mm -hmm. And then they have a choice. Do I continue? Do I work on that, you know, and or whatever? Or do I just ignore it? And of course, it'll all come back. Mm -hmm. So it is a helpful thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. And um, it uh, it's all metaphorical, though. It's not necessarily that there are little boxy, you know, uh, uh, things floating around in the non-physical. You have to think of it as, as a metaphoric thing, because once we're out of our physical space, 
things aren't like they are here. Here in our physical space, everything is a physical object. So that's, we have to think in terms of physical objects. And physical objects take up space, you know, they have shapes, they have volume, you know, they, they uh, have things inside of them. That's the way we interpret the information because we are people who think in terms of, of a language that is basically generated the language has grown up to describe physical stuff. So we have to use that language. So that's why we see the box. And why a box? Well, that's just kind of, it's a structure. And it, um, you know, is, has boundaries. It's contained. You know, all of those things are part of the metaphor. Now, you may have seen it as a circle, and that'd been okay, too. It doesn't mean that the, some of them are boxes and some of them are circles. It just means that was your preference in the, in the, uh, description that you gave it when you had to turn it back into language so that you could describe it or think about it. So there's nothing really fundamental about what you saw, but there is lots that's fundamental about the meaning, about the metaphor behind what you saw. So it's it's not, people will have sometimes, they take things too literally and they'll have an idea that the non-physical is full of these little boxes that follow us around and attach to us and they they take a very literal description of it. And that's not really the case. It's that we walk around all the time with negativity and with uh, you know these problems, and we're very attached to those problems because those problems define us. And uh, we can't seem to function without them. And they drag us down. They make it hard for us to get rid of fear because you know that's our fear. So that just puts it in a nice little metaphoric you know, picture that makes it easier to deal with because there's something you can dissolve. You can dissolve the box. If you just said, well, here's some people having some trouble and they have the negativities, help them. So it's like, well, what do I do? You know, how do I help them? What can I do about their negativity? Well, there's really, you know, it's hard for you to imagine how to work with that. But if you have the metaphor that that negativity is this little box that you can dissolve, now you've just created a tool set where you can be helpful to other people using the box and your intent to dissolve it as the tools. So that's kind of the bigger picture of what was going on there. And it was, uh, you were in class. It was kind of a learning moment for you to one, see it, be aware of it, and then later realize that you can affect it. And you can do the very same thing for yourself. It's not just other people. You can find your own fear and your and your own dysfunction and visualize it as a box or anything else that you like and then get rid of it and it'll actually help you grow up and you'll feel better. You'll feel more, you'll feel relief from that. Mm -hmm. So you can work, use it on yourself as well as uh, ways to help other people. So what you've created there with your interpretation is a metaphor that serves as a tool set for you to help others or help yourself deal with negativity. And it's a very good question to bring up because now there'll be a couple of thousand other people who will hear this on YouTube and they'll go, oh, okay, that's what those things are. And okay, I'll, I'll use that metaphor to work on myself. So it's gonna be very beneficial for people to, to hear this. It's a very good question, thank you. Um I've got already the idea, you know, what you, um, uh, what you said. I, I learned that I can, be, uh, can get active, can become active myself. So mm -hmm. this was a, a great uh, step forward for me to become active. You know, now I'm 
thinking about uh, what I could um, put uh, um, in this, um, you know, multidimensional world instead. So I, I, I thought about, you know, building something very positive instead. Do you think that this is a good, good idea? Yes, yes. Make something out of it. You were given these, these, uh, 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 what do we call them? Uh, you know, visions or uh, you know, experiences uh, for a reason. It's part of your growth path, and it wasn't just to go, oh wow, that's nice, and then forget about them. They were given to you because this is a step in a process of you uh, growing up. So definitely take them, take the tools that you have now, and use them. And as you use them, you will learn more and you'll get new tools and the whole thing just builds. So by all means, uh, take it then and follow your intuition and put it, put it to work, get involved with it. And as you do that, you'll find your meditations and your ability to get in and out of the non-physical gets easier and easier and easier because you're spending more time actually working there, not just as an observer, but you know, you've got things to do. And that experience then will make the whole process much simpler and easier. That is what already took place, you know, because now I'm uh, starting to get an active part. And, you know, life, I, I live life as a meditation, the 24 hour meditation already. So it's very, very beautiful. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I get, can start to create on my own, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. <laughs> It's yes. a lot easier. That's and a lot more interesting. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes. and it'll pull you. It'll pull you in instead of just yes. something that you uh, you experience. Now it's it's more than just experience. Now it's it's getting involved. It's getting interactive, yes. and you'll yes. see this thing will grow. Pretty soon, it, the job will get bigger, and as yes. you get better at it, it will expand, and then there will be other things to do, and and you will learn more, and the whole thing just kind of kind of grows now that you get involved in this you, you'll see that it's not just this little tool set that you that you started working with but that's just an entrance into a whole different world of being and interaction and connection and dealing with people that is going to unfold you know in the in, you know with you in the in in the future thank you so much <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, our next question comes from Justin. I'm planning an art project that utilizes the viewer's intent to alter the current state of the art piece. In terms of our potential to sway the probability of random events, is there any significant difference between using a computer-based random ge number generator as opposed to using true random event generator? Uh, depends just what your application is, Justin. But I would say that in general, if what if what you are using the random numbers for is that that, the, that they have the attributes of being random. In other words, they're uh, they have an attribute of being random is that if all these numbers are between zero and one, an attribute of being random. If you sum up uh, ten thousand of them you'll get an average that's really close to 0.5, you see. That's an attribute of being random. Um, if that is the key thing, that the numbers have the attribute of randomness, um, which mean they, they vary 
randomly between say zero and one and average at 0.5, then um, I guess to say another way that if you pull out one number, it could be anything between zero and one, but on, on an average, you'll get as many less than 0.5 as you will above 0.5 because it's an equal probability of pulling any one of these 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 numbers out and therefore that's why you get the average of 0.5 well that's that's those are the attributes of randomness now when you do that in a computer it's not really random it's what's called pseudo random there's an algorithm that makes up numbers that have the attributes of being random that's probably depending on your application good enough there's not really a lot uh, of difference between that and a a true randomness which is something like uh um, a uh, let's say a, a radioactive maybe cesium source or something that's a has a very low level of radioactivity and it shoots out a particle every so often and that's random it's kind of a natural randomness and when it does that depending on say the direction the particle comes out or something else it's it's given a number between one and zero so a particle shoots out randomly in any particular random direction and depending on how it does that, the little device says, oh, the random particle shot out over here, that's a three. Oh, it shot out over there, that's a nine, you know, that's a nine or an eight. And it does that, and it just is always gonna be between zero and one, and it's gonna have an average between 0.5, but it's not coming from an algorithm, it's coming from a random event. That's really the difference between the two, and I kinda, I know you knew that, but I'm trying to make it clearer for the people who heard the question, you know, just what the question is all about. And uh, anyway, it probably doesn't matter which one of those you use if you're doing something where people can use their intent to modify it. Because both of them have the, have uncertainty about them. In both of them, there's uncertainty about what the next number is going to be. Okay, so we don't know what the next digit is in either case. Now the algorithm, knows because the algorithm if you started it over it would give you the exact same series of digits you know every time you start it with the exact same seed because it's an algorithm but still those digits that it gives you have the properties of being random and you don't know what the next one is now does the computer know what the next one is yes but it's not the computer that's going to be using its intent to modify and it's not the people looking at it or you know, us in the macro world, we don't know what that next digit is. Therefore, there's uncertainty in what that digit is. If there's uncertainty, our intent can modify what it is. In other words, the, the um, larger consciousness system can modify the digits that you get from a pseudo-random generator even though we say, well, it's an algorithm and it always, you know, we know, you know, the next digits, we've already run this six times and every time we get this series of digits. Well, in that case, if we're looking at that series of digits, no, there's no uncertainty what the next digit's going to be. But if we're not looking at that series of digits, if we've not ever run it really before, and if we did, we never really kept track of the sequence of digits that we have, then there's uncertainty for us what the next digit's gonna be. And that uncertainty is enough for the larger consciousness system to put any digit in there that it wants because there's no conflict. Nobody will say, ah, 
that's not the next digit that's coming up. You see, that should have been a point three. And now that's a point eight because nobody knows that it should have been a point three. Well, as long as nobody knows it should have been a point three, then it works just like an event based random number because it has complete uncertainty as to what that next digit is. The only way that it wouldn't is that if we actually ran it once, we kept track of all the numbers in their sequence and we knew that what the next one was going to be. Now there'd be no uncertainty and no, the larger conscious system wouldn't change what that next digit is. It would have to be what it, you know, what it was before, because we know algorithms only going to do the same thing every time it runs. So in that case, the uncertainty would be zero. You'd be perfectly certain what the next digit was going to be. And then your intent is not going to move it. Just the fact that you haven't run it before, you don't have a list of the digits. Or even if you had run it before, it doesn't matter. You could have run it a hundred times with that same seed. But if you don't have a list of the digits and you're talking about if these things are making digits like, you know, a hundred of them per second or something, you know, it, there's a lot of digits there. So you don't know out of the million digits it's going to produce what the next one's going to be. You have no idea. That uncertainty then can be manipulated by the larger conscious system and nobody would know. There's no conflict created in our reality because nobody knows what it's supposed to be. In that case, it makes no difference. Either one will work exactly the same because there's complete uncertainty in both. This, the main difference is, is that in the, the generated one comes out of an algorithm, the pseudo random, we could reduce that uncertainty if we wanted to. We could watch all the random numbers and keep track of exactly which ones came out and where we were in the list. And then we could reduce it with the, with the cesium atom that is breaking down and shooting off in some random direction. We've got nothing that we can do, you see, to reduce the uncertainty. It's got uncertainty that's irreducible. We can't, we can't change it. So that's the difference between them. But if you're using them, just, just something that has uncertainty, then either one will work as well as the other. The larger consciousness system doesn't have any problem putting out a digit from an algorithm that is different because, you know, your intent has, has made it biased. Instead of getting the point three, you get more point sevens. So it kind of biases it in, a, in the up direction. It can, uh, it can do that as well. It's not, uh, it's not stuck because there's no, you know, there's uh, no uncertainty. Now, it can't, it's not going to do it in a massive way. This is the other thing. It's stuck to doing it within the natural uncertainty of that system. So if you use a, if you use a, a um, if you use a calculated random number sequence, your random, your average isn't going to be exactly 0.5. Okay. If you use a cesium atom, you're, median isn't going to be your average isn't going to be exactly 0.5 because it's not a you know it, it's not like that it's going to it's going to be a 0.49999 maybe if you run say 100,000 of them there may be a bunch of those nines if you only run 10 of them it may only be a 0.9 so if you it depends on how many numbers you read how much uncertainty there is in that you know result well, you know, let's say you run 100 numbers and it could be a 0.499 or it could be a 0.5001. 
or 0 0.501. Those are the, you know, it could vary in that much. Well, if you just take that, if you just did that experiment 20 times, half of them should be the, the average that's just slightly lower than 0.5 and half of them should be the average that's just slightly above, you know, 0.5 because it ought to turn out one way as the other. So that's, you know, now if you have a, again, if your random number generator is calculated and you've run exactly the same sequence, you're going to get exactly the same average every time. So if you have it com compute these numbers, you do it again, they're always going to have the same average. But that's typically not what happens with random number generators. Typically you start and at some time you start counting and then you stop and it's hard to, something that's making random numbers, you know, the thousands by the second or whatever, it's really hard to do, to repeat exactly what you've done again. So, you know, normally that's not really a, a problem. So anyway, that's the thing. So you can, when you change it, what you're changing is within that uncertainty between the 0.499 and the 0.501. So you may get, if you're trying to use your intent to lower that average, you may get more 0.499s and 0.49s and 0.4899s, and you may get, you know, 20 of those and nothing that's above 0.5. Well, that's your intent, then modifies that, and we just say, well, that's just luck. You know, it can work that way because that's the way random number generators are. They're not always going to have perfect symmetry of their numbers, you know, about, about a center point. So then that's just luck. But if we do that 20 times in a row and all 20 of them are low or all 20 of them are high as far as the median, you see now we have something that is highly unlikely. And now you say, oh, we've really done something with our intent here because we've got a bunch of them that are all biased in the same way, even though the bias is just within the natural uncertainty that that random number generator has anyway. And all random number generators will have that uncertainty. If you take a cesium atom and you take, you know, a thousand different random numbers out of that cesium atom, it's not going to be exactly 0 0.500, you know, on out. It's not going to be a perfect 0.5. It's going to be a little higher, a little low. There's going to be some natural uncertainty there because sometimes things that are random will come off four or five times in a row on the heavy side. Well, it's just random, you know, sometimes that happens. So it doesn't, there's no rule that says it has to have exactly, when you pick this number, that exactly half of them have to be higher and exactly half have to be lower. And generally, there's about as many higher as lower, but they're not a perfect thing. And that gives us uncertainty and we can modify it within that uncertainty. So that's kind of how it works. So I, my guess is it doesn't matter which one of those you use, as long as you, as long as, as when people are using it, nobody really knows what the next number is supposed to be. Nobody really knows what the average is. Nobody sat down and done all the work to specify every time this thing runs, you know, it's, it'll run exactly, you know, 100 characters from the beginning to the end. And it's going to run the exact same 100 characters. And I've done an average of that. And that average is this. Now you're stuck with that. Every time you'll get that average because you haven't given it any uncertainty to work with. Okay. Where that's not a problem for the cesium.
it is a problem for the for the other one. But as long as you haven't done that and you haven't measured it, and you don't know exactly how many it's counting, because it's counting, like I say, many of them a second. You know, computers are really fast. Computers can run those digits out at you know hundreds of thousands of digits, maybe millions of digits per second. You know, even if you put your stopwatch on it, you're not going to get the same number of digits. So it's really difficult for you to have that kind of precision and to get rid of all the all the uncertainty. So within that uncertainty, whatever you have, you can modify it, no matter what the source of the random numbers are. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Am I right in thinking that the more, I guess if I had 100 different seeds running at the same time, and then maybe a separate seed running that determines which of those 100 seeds it grabs from and at what exact time it would add another level of uncertainty where it would be almost impossible to ever pinpoint what number was going to come next, even if someone was to sit down and go through all the code and all the processing. It would be, it seems like it would kind of cover all the bases if I had 100 would, of them running. What it would do is just be make it more difficult for somebody to get rid of the uncertainty. Okay. It just makes it harder, but not impossible. You could trace through what you've done and, and you know get to that answer. It just makes it a harder thing. What people often do to create that uncertainty is they, they uh, attach their seed to the clock. So every computer has a clock, right? That's what tells you what time it is. And the little thing down on the bottom right-hand corner is, is a little clock. And it's got some kind of, you know, just like your wristwatch, it's got a little cesium clock or something in there that uh, – that uh, you know vibrates a crystal and keeps time, and it counts time in very small units. It doesn't, even though it only clicks on your screen every every minute. You know, it's actually counting seconds and hundreds of seconds, just like your watch does, because it's a some kind of solid state crystal thing that's vibrating at you know so many millions of vibrations a second, and each one of those vibrations is a little piece of time. Okay, so if you can go into that clock going to the root part of that clock, you can come out with a, you know, a, an eight-digit number or something of what time it is, you know, down to tens of thousands or millions of seconds, that kind of thing. And you can use that number then to trigger your seed. And that number is going to be different because of the clock. Time just keeps on moving. So those digits that tell you what time it is are different every Time the computer goes and samples it. Okay, computer says, "All right, I'm going to do a run now. I need a seed." It goes out, grabs the seed from the clock time, and uses that. Now you don't know what the seed is. Nobody really knows what the seed is. If you knew what the seed was, you could predict the random numbers that come out. But since you don't know what the seed is, you can't, unless you can duplicate that seed, save it somewhere, and now now you've you know you can reduce uncertainty that way. But if it's just a real-time thing where it goes out and accesses the clock time, that's a you've really put a you know a, a, you've really made it hard for anybody to determine what the next number is going to be, and that uh, that's typically the way people get by that rather than having bunches of seeds and you know picking having another seed to pick a seed. There is an algorithmic path through that that you could follow. The uh, the time thing is a little more difficult. To do because you don't it's the computer that's making the choice of when to go grab the time when it's ready for a seed and though that probably you could repeat that process the time won't be the same those digits aren't going to be exactly the same 
You know, you could take the fifth digit in, which would be one ten thousandth of a second, and just look at that digit and let that be your C. You know, that sort of thing. It's going to be a digit between, you know, zero to nine and and let that be your seed or you can take the the sum of two digits you know divided by three you know who knows you can do whatever you want to do you can make up your own algorithm that works off of those digits and uh it's something that's not likely to repeat but it's still not the same as an event-based random generator it's still an algorithm all you've done is you've made it so it's really hard for anybody to you know, to, to guess what the next random number is going to be, which means you've preserved its uncertainty, which means you can modify it with your intent. After all, that computer is a virtual computer. Just like your body is a virtual body, that's a virtual computer. That computer is just a bunch of ones and zeros in another computer in, you know, in uh, the larger consciousness system. So, it uh, its output can be manipulated, even though we'd say that's unmanipulatable because it's a it's an algorithm. But if you look at it from the larger consciousness systems point, that's a virtual computer, and it can manipulate the output anytime it wants to. It just can't do it if it creates a discontinuity, a problem in our reality. You see, it's, then it's not going to do that. It's not going to give you, uh, you know, 20,000 point nines, you know, out of a, you know, for a random distribution, because that's going to violate the way we understand, you know, the way the computer works. So it won't do that. That's why it's limited to that within the uncertainty, natural uncertainty of the, uh, of the problem. So it has limitations, but within those limitations, it can modify the output any way it wants. It's just a virtual computer. It's co it's computing that computer, if you will. It's a it's a uh, <laughs> so it's something that is changeable. The only thing is, it's got to be enough uncertainty to cover the up the fact that anything might have ever been manipulated. And it and it seems like it would be similar to the double slit experiment, where if if uh, the seeds were generated off the clock, if there was some way to erase that information of what, what time it grabbed the numbers from so that it was unknown, you know, if the data was erased, basically, so that it was never known, it seems like that would almost solve the problem. I don't know if that's possible or not to ever erase it completely, but it seems like that would make it uh, to where it's just like uh, having the detectors on or off. Yeah, it is a, there is a, uh, it is like the double slit experiment in some ways, depends on how you, uh, how you think about it. You can take, you know, you can take these random numbers and, you know, you could, let's say you could take the random numbers and, or, yeah, some, some set of randomized data and you could say, okay, here's all the random numbers. I've run out of string here. And I know that the string has a, uh, an average of this, you know, to seven or eight decimal places. Here's its average, and here's the string. And if I ever run this particular string out just like this, I'll always get that average. So I know that. And now I lose that. So I, 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 I knew it, but I didn't write it down. You know, I don't have a hard copy of it or anything like that. It's just something I did. I did the math. I know what the average is of these numbers, but I forget it. It gets lost. 
it's a year later and I can't really remember what it is. Now, when I run that same series again, does it have to give me the same average? No, you see, because the data has been erased. It can give me some other average. If I remembered what it was, and I ran that exact same set, it would have to give me that exact same set. But if I don't know what it was, if that number, I'll say I did write it down, but then it got burned up or thrown out in the trash, it's gone. It somehow got erased. Now that same series doesn't have to give me that same average anymore because it could give me something different and I wouldn't know the difference. And as long as I can't tell the difference, well, any manipulation of that is within the uncertainty of the problem and it could be done if there was a reason. In other words, the larger kind of system could do that manipulation if it had some reason to do it. It wouldn't have to give me the same numbers back again. It would just give me, you know, it could give me something else entirely. So in that way, it is like a, an eraser in the, in the double slit experiment. 